Welcome everyone to part two of our discussion with David Clark of the Royal National Institute of Blind People. My name is Phoebe Fox, an associate in our charities practice here in London, and joining us today is Richard Norwich, head of our charities group globally. Um, we're delighted to be joined again by David um, to discuss RNIB in more detail. If anyone listening missed part one of our podcast, David was telling us about his interesting and diverse background on the way to uh, joining RNIB in 2018 and what RNIB, as a brief introduction, aims to do as a charitable organisation. David, um, I wanted to kick off today by building on, on that introduction you gave at the end of part one and, and asking how you think that RNIB has changed as an organisation over time and, and in particular since you've been there? Yes, I mean, it's a very good question. Um, and, you know, having sort of been a sort of traditional Victorian charity, uh, you know, we're royal, we're national, we're institute, and, and that sort of um, reeks of that very sort of interesting past. And, and I, I'm still absolutely amazed by, I had the opportunity to read the kind of opening words from uh, some Thomas Armitage you know that 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 he wrote down at the very start of the charity, and um, it's so powerful. I mean, if you just think of bringing access to reading and writing, you know, the sort of very kind of basis. And there's something about the 1860s, I think, that, that so many things kind of that I'm involved with seem to get kicked off in the 1860s. It's incredible. But as you say, life changes, and um, the RNIB has involved been involved in really some incredible innovations over the years. Um, you know, the idea of the Audible book now is 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 considered to be kind of, you know, mainstream. And, and yet, you know, in the 1930s, uh, our recording of uh, um, Agatha Christie's Roger Ackroyd um, was a remarkable thing in actually bringing books uh, to blind and partially sighted people on long prior records. Um, incredible, um, an incredible uh, innovation. Uh, and, and, and this is and this has carried on with our involvement in kind of you know pedestrian crossings and and, and lots of different things around the Disability Discrimination Act and and all sorts of involvement with lots of different types of of, of technology. Um, and as I was joining RNIB, uh, we just finished work on something called the Orbit Reader, which was a low cost uh, Braille display. If you can imagine having a a, twen a, 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 a typing keyboard but a braille version which had sort of eight dots on it and then a sort of 20 cell display on the front of it uh, to read braille. This was a portable device that meant you could Bluetooth or um, or wirelessly put documents on there and basically have much of the library sitting on this little handheld device. And uh, these things used to cost sort of three, four, five thousand pounds. And we managed to, in conjunction with people from around the world, create one that was that was less than 500 quid. Uh, still a lot of money. I'm not saying it's a cheap thing, but you know, just brilliant to be involved in that kind of that kind of innovation. So, I would say the RNIB has has shifted from kind of setting up dependencies, if you like, setting up alternative ways of doing things. At, at you know, um, because those things were not available within the wider society, or it wasn't on the agenda of wider society. To now a real shift where we are seeking to break down those barriers that exist in society. And I think there's a real shift in our in our viewpoint that, yes, we have to continue to provide services in the meantime while we're doing that. But actually, it's far better for everybody if, if this sort of uh, function 
whatever it may be, is actually built in from the start within how society operates. Um, and I always like to give the example of um, around accessibility. There are clearly things that I benefit from that are specific accessible tech or accessible things that. Um, but on the last podcast, I was talking about you know the iPhone or the, you know a lot of smartphones now where that's naturally built in. And I always say to people who who, who drive, you know, that if you didn't have tarmac on the roads and you didn't have traffic lights, and you didn't have roundabouts, you didn't have sign, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to drive. And that's accessibility, you know. Um, it would not driving would not be accessible to people so i think we need to think a lot differently and i think the rnib is thinking a lot differently about how we work with commercial entities how we work with the public sector how we work with government proactively to change things in a way that mean that we don't as a charity have to keep providing stuff in a different format or in a different way because it's already built in and i think you've already seen for example through um if you go onto the most government websites now, you will start to see accessible versions of documents being made available in the same place as, as, as a standard document. So lots of work to do, but I think you've definitely seen that shift, Phoebe, from seeking to do alternative things and set up alternative structures to enable blind and partially sighted people to be able to do things, to saying, actually, that's not happening anymore. We're going to work with wider society and the major stakeholders within society to make sure that blind and partially sighted people's needs are met from the start. Thank you, David. I think that's a very important point and probably one that many of our listeners, particularly those who, who work in the charity sector, um, would see as a, as a, a key focus. And this might be quite a difficult question to answer because as you <laughs> just touched on and you touched on in your um, previous episode, uh, RNIB has has been involved in a number of, of innovations and developments over the 150 years it's it's been around. But what would you say, um, from your perspective, has been RNIB's biggest success um, to date? Gosh, um, I mean, ugh, there's so many to consider, and, and and so many that you know have gone before my time. Um, but I think. I think latterly the one I really, really love is I did mention to you that, you know, we first recorded our first talking book in the 1930s. We then uh, went on to sort of six track machines. And I used to have this wonderful big chunk of metal in my house that was a talking book machine. It was called. It was a great name. And uh, you used to have to, you know, press the track change button. And also it was very complicated to use. But, you know, I, I managed to learn how to do it. But anyway. Not only have we now digitized our library, so it's the RNIB reading services is all is all online now, so it can be accessed through the through the web. Um, but we, we've also uh, this year introduced our first uh, RNIB library smart speaker app. And I saw a lovely tweet the other day uh, from a lady who was tweeting about the fact that she was lying in the bath with the uh, with the book playing outside in the hallway and uh, on the smart speaker having a very relaxing evening and i thought wow that is just it's amazing you know that that we've gone all the way from you know having you know long playing records playing on old gramophones right through to having the whole over thirty thousand books now available um to blind and partially sighted people through through smart speaker and the other one in a similar vein that would pick and we got a, we got to a, a real um uh, point yesterday a real milestone yesterday actually is that we run a service called bookshare uh for for uh, students and and uh and, and for schools um and 
you probably know that publishers have the obligation to provide an accessible copy of a book, but that was, you know, sort of dealing with um, individual requests all the time was becoming very difficult. So RNIB set up Bookshare um, and uh, we have we have over 30,000 users of that service and over 8,000 schools uh, signed up. Uh, we would love more and more to be signed up and, and, we're, and we're reaching them very quickly. But yesterday we, uh, in conjunction with, you know, publishers and people who work with us to do this, we reached 750,000 books on that platform which has probably trebled or quadrupled over the last three to four years. Uh, and that is with this terrific support of publishers, um, but also, you know, the innovation of the team who work in that area. And it's so vital for education, you know, being able to have primary access to an accessible version of a book, whether that be in, in large print or Braille or, or, or soft Braille, as we call it, which is the digital form of Braille um, or, um, or audio, you know, it's just superb that, that, that people, you know, whether they're doing a law degree or whether they're doing their, their chemistry GCSE or whatever they're doing, you know, have access to that um, information. So they're both they're both reading. And then um, I should also say that some of this stuff cost me an absolute fortune because, you know, we've released some products recently that I just can't help buying. So <laughs> we, 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 we worked with Miele on a on an accessible washing machine. Uh, which is um, which has meant I have absolutely no excuse now, uh, and that is an absolutely super device. It's really really great the way that's been designed with a tactile front and 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 uh, toned beeps in the appropriate places, so you know you know what program you're using, what what spin rate you've got it on, what temperature, whether you've got it on uh, softener or no softener. It's an absolutely superb piece of work. We're one of the leading manufacturers, um, so of course I had to get one of those. So that's great. Um, <laughs> We work with Samsung on their 2020 uh, television range. Um, and what's wonderful about that is not only do now I have a, a TV that I can use all the apps on, whether it be Netflix or Disney Plus or whatever, or BBC iPlayer, I can use all of that, plus know what channel I'm on and set, set do all the settings through voiceover. But they also said to us, by making that product accessible for blind and partially sighted people, they actually made it better for everybody. Uh, which is just music to my ears, really, because that's why we work with um, providers. And and just to finish, you know, it makes much more sense for us to work with someone who's already in the market and a leader in their market than it does for us to go do something ourselves. And we do do some products ourselves. You know, we've 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 worked with a provider to provide a new uh, dab radio. We've worked with a, a provider to pro provide a new talking microwave. But we'd love to work with existing providers to 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 you know, make some really high quality but accessible equipment. Yeah, you can see um, just by way of the, those examples that um, you've given today that your um, RNIB is clearly living out. It's the, the, the change that you described earlier of mm. working with corporates alongside corporates um, rather than, you know, charities starting from scratch and, and building yeah. up, basically no. reinventing the wheel. I think you're right. And um, I mean, there's two slightly less positive stories, but they're definitely both creating real change, which we've been very public about. One of them was the what's in store that we launched. Uh, we had a week down in uh, down on, on Hammersmith Grove where we launched a pop up store where essentially uh, we, we, we had produce in that store that either was not labeled or had labels that meant nothing. So, you know, um, we had anti-fact disinfectant, for example, uh, that told you nothing about it. Um, 
uh, but we had the usual, you know, things that you would think were cans of drink or were, were washing up liquid or whatever, all in the same packaging, but with no no details on it. And um, of course, it was amazing to see people, people's reaction and frustration to mm. knowing what they thought something was, but being unsure. And of course, we had a shopkeeper in there who was playing a fantastic role, who was saying, you know, um, people say, well, what, what's in what's the difference between the red can and the blue can? And he so oh, I don't know. Um, and um and of course it just set it up beautifully to sort of say well you know packaging is really important and it was brilliant who we managed to engage in that process and get down there to understand it and and we were working with some brilliant companies now on on how we how we ensure that packaging is 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 more accessible because blind and plastic society people do need to know what's in what they're buying you know allergies and whatever the same as anyone else so um so that was absolutely brilliant. And then the other one that we did that that even made it as far as Forbes magazine was we mocked up a an accessible pregnancy test. It may be quite remarkable, and it certainly hit me to the core, really, when I realised that um, blind and partially sighted people uh, taking a pregnancy test have no option but to ask someone else the result because there is no accessible pregnancy test. And when you just think about that, it's incredibly deep and incredibly difficult to take um, because it's highly personal. Um, And so, uh, again, there's some great things happening in the marketplace to look at that kind of thing. But I think it's examples like that. You know, I gave you some really great examples where people are on it. But there's also other other parts of life where where we've by no means made the progress we'd like to make. Uh, And this is really, really important stuff. Um, so our approach is to work with the appropriate stakeholders, be they commercial, public sector or government, um, to make sure we see some real action moving forward. Yeah. And um, I mean, anyone listening who works in or, or with the charity sector will know that, that in particular charities over the last um, year, 18 months, have been um, impacted heavily by, by the pandemic. We touched mm. on on the pandemic briefly in, in part one of the podcast mm. but more generally and in the last year what do you see as the are the main challenges that face rnib um sort of on a, on a on a daily weekly or yearly basis the pandemic essentially accentuated the areas of inequity uh and you know we had to redouble our efforts at a time when almost, you know, financially, operationally, uh, it was from a health perspective, it was it was almost kind of, you know, mm. can you dial back? You know, well, no, yeah. we can't because the need is greater. Um, and, you know, receiving calls about people whose whose carers were not able to get, you know, sort of, sort of elderly people for whom sight loss was just one of the problems they 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 were dealing with. Uh, um, who, who carers weren't going to be coming to see them and, and um, uh, access to food. You know, what happened last year was that at the very point that blind and partially sighted people who use uh, home delivery for their shopping uh, needed it, most of all, uh, because that's a service they were using anyway, uh, they couldn't get any slots because, uh, you know, most of England, most of Middle England and or whatever had, uh, had uh, zapped them and got them in early. So. There were a number of things we had to do. Firstly, uh, a lot of my uh, team were office-based and we had to get them home-based pretty quickly, uh, which yeah. we were able to do because, as I say, you know, 5,000 calls a week became 6,500, 7,000 calls a week. 
uh, at, at that time because of the extra need, uh, and, and we had to take those calls. There was no, there was no, no choice of reducing hours or saying sorry, it's too difficult. We we had to find a way of doing it. So within a week and a half, we had all of the teams over three hundred telephone based teams uh, working from home. Uh, we then had our our eye clinic liaison officers who were in clinic being told to leave clinic for understandable reasons um, because of the pandemic, because of the safety and all that kind of stuff. So we had to find a way of making sure that they were also able to continue that patient contact. Um, But also importantly, encourage people who absolutely did need to go to hospital for, for, for treatment that could, you know, prevent them losing more eyesight or at least keep them healthy to ensure that they continued to go, notwithstanding the increased risks. So it was so, so important that we continued uh, that. And I'm pleased to say again that, you know, our, our, our team stood up brilliantly to that. Over half, uh, Around half of our eye clinic liaison officers are blind and partially sighted themselves. Uh, and they were just absolutely incredible in, in, in helping us continue that service and continuing to reach people to talk about the importance. And of course, um, I think it's fair to say that mental health uh, was also um, a massive issue as well. You know, the whole idea of, of being socially distanced as a blind or partially sighted person, the idea of knowing that you're two metres away from somebody, knowing that, um, you know, you're not going to get, or the fear of being kind of shouted at and, and, and you know, like my sight is I have no sight at all. And it's fairly obvious. I have a very large German Shepherd guide dog. It's fairly obvious to people that I can't see. But many people who are who have some vision, it, it's not obvious. And it, it can be really daunting when you know, you might do something by mistake by getting too close to somebody and you get balled out for it. So a lot of anxiety, a lot of increased anxiety, a lot of worry. We were able to work with government on a number of things. So particularly around the food, we managed to get uh, food slots uh, made available, special provision to make sure that people could get access to food. But, you know, I have to say, Phoebe, I never thought I would be in a situation where 20% of the people we surveyed told us they were rationing food. I mean, it's just, in a modern society, it's just absolutely... um, absolutely ridiculous and then we also had to work very very hard to to ensure that businesses uh, and transport hubs and 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 government were putting out um the right advice and the right advice in an accessible way i mean i remember a lockdown in manchester for example being announced via an inaccessible image on twitter you know which yeah. if you're blind or partially sighted and no one's put any alt text on the image or whatever then you don't know what it says. You don't know what to do. You don't. You, you you might not even be able to comply with it because no one's actually explicitly told you what that's about. So there were lots of things. So I spent a lot of time and a number of other colleagues spent a lot of time um, on the news channels and everything else explaining that what the issues were for blind and partially sighted people and making sure that that wider society understood the impact and the difficulties. Um, but also we worked very very hard with uh, with government uh, to try and ensure that information was accessible. Uh, and that carried on into the um, into the vaccine program. Um, and, you know, you notice now that you do get the opportunity to, to go to a vaccine centre now where there is um, where there is Braille and, and audio in instructions and that the staff are trained. So we got involved in a lot of that. But I have to say um, it was one of the one of the hardest 18 months of my professional career, but also the most rewarding because I think the fact that these inequities were brought up so clearly gave us real evidence to work on them and remove them as as, as barriers. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people that are on IB, uh, we have just around sort of 1,200 staff. 
put so much energy and, and, and gave so much to this, but that's because the need was there. And I think it gave us even more evidence to share with society and, and to explain that some of the ways things work are just not equitable and need to change. And um, it was great to have the opportunity in some ways to do that, but not underplaying in any way the suffering and heartache and, and misery that, that many people went through during this horrifically difficult time. No, but it is interesting what you say about highlighting um, the inequity, and I'm sure that lots of people listening within the charity sector would would have um, seen and experienced that themselves over the last mm. 18 months. Um, David, I'm aware that we have taken up um, enough of your time, <laughs> and we should shortly be wrapping up. But just to, to finish briefly, um, it would be great if you could just tell us what uh, is in RNIB's future? What is there to look out for in in the upcoming years? So within that vein of, of, of changing society, uh, I think um, in my own personal world of, of, of services, uh, we are very, very driven to close the education gap and to close the employment gap. Um, and all of that being wrapped up in technology. Um, so, you know, um, over the next few years, uh, we will be uh, concluding in conjunction with some other charities and some and some other uh, um, uh, academic institutions, the visually impaired curriculum, which we, we hope will at last enshrine the specific items that should be covered in a visually impaired child's uh, curriculum within the overall curriculum. And so things like technology, for example, will play a much earlier role within that learning process. Uh, the idea of Braille phonics, for example, I'm sure that will blow people's minds on the call, but equally important. Uh, so there's lots and lots of stuff in there um, and accessible exams and all that kind of stuff we, we trust will lead to that education gap being reduced through the edu through, through, through professional training for, for teachers, uh, but also a wider understanding amongst children as well around what sight loss means. And, 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 and you know, I was very struck in my Paralympic sort of world about the work that Sainsbury's did with schools pre-2012 and we have a lot of plans to open up that to children to help them understand sight loss and then in the employment space um, we have uh, uh, just launched uh, something called uh, Visibly Better Employer um, which is I mean we'd love to work with any commercial companies or charities who, who, who are on this uh, podcast it's it's we have the Valuable 500, which we're a huge fan of, and, and, and we have Disability Confident, which, again, we are a leader in and very, very uh, proud to be part of. But Visibly Better Employer is a, a, a little sort of more specific around sight loss. It's about recruitment practices uh, and it's about uh, sort of day-to-day uh, -day issues that may arise on uh, in, in the employment of, of, of blind or partially sighted people. Uh, and I, I don't want to use the word light touch, but it's a framework in which uh, employers can just check what they're doing uh, to ensure that they're open uh, to blind and partially sighted employees. Um, and I'd encourage people to take a look at, at that on the RNIB uh, website because um, we, we think it, it can be a very powerful change. And we have a number of employment initiatives uh, with commercial companies, which are explicitly aimed at getting more and more and more blind and partially sighted people into the workplace through meaningful paid work, um, which matches their their skills and capabilities. So, I would say education, employment, and technology are the three areas that I shall be progressing very hard over the near future.
Amazing. Thank you, David. It doesn't sound like you're about to get any um, less busy uh, in the near future. <laughs> but um, a huge thank you from us uh, for taking the time to speak to us today. Um, on behalf of our listeners and, and everyone else, I'm sure that they will all um, very much enjoy listening to both part one and part two of the podcast. And um, thank you again. And we will speak to you soon. Thank you.